Rick Madison and Scott Lanigan, chair of Central Okanagan Journey Home Society, delve into the problems surrounding Kelowna's homelessness issue and interview community stakeholders to discover possible solutions. Uh, okay, so I'm host uh, Rick Madison here with uh, Scott Lanigan. That's me right here. President of the Central Okanagan Journey Home Initiative. I think and I've been Prime Minister, President, Swami. <laughs> Member at large, <laughs> and and and, bef- and that is the voice of Ginny, and Ginny Becker is the executive director of the Child Advocacy Center, and you're going to hear a lot about CAC. Correct. Could we say that? Yeah. CAC. Okay, so um, I was doing a little bit of research because that's what I do, and the story you told at the the hundred heroes yes. function. Um, I think properly presents and, and storytelling is, is obviously very powerful because the CAC does a whole bunch of different things. But maybe if you wouldn't mind giving us a condensed version of, of what the child, can, uh, child Advocacy Center does as it intersects with homelessness. Sure. And I actually think it's easier to explain what the Child Advocacy Center does by explaining what would have hap- what happens in the absence of a Child Advocacy Center. Um, because this is one of those models that incorporates a whole bunch of agencies that each have their own lane to swim in, uh, but bringing them together under one roof and how that benefits families. So the, the speech you're talking about that we gave at the 100 Heroes event a number of years ago was really the first chance, actually it was the first opportunity we spoke sort of publicly. Um, it was as the campaign was launching to raise the funds to, to build the centre. Um, and it occurred to me that we needed to explain to the community what's missing in the care system around children who've experienced trauma through abuse and neglect. And, and ultimately, that traditional system consists of multiple agencies that each have a job to do. And to be fair, they're each doing the best they can do. Um, but the reality is the sort of geographical silos that separate those agencies really prevents them from doing uh, the work as meaningfully as it could be done. Uh, so CACs really came out of the question of when children are are brave enough to find the courage to come forward with the story um, of abuse or neglect, could we not do better to create environments that help them to feel safe and secure and and comfortable in that environment? So that's really where CACs were sort of born out of was, does it make sense to interview children in police stations and in environments that really aren't built for them? So the CAC in Kelowna got operational in January of 2020. Um, and essentially what we serve to do is create a coordinated holistic approach to supporting uh, child victims of abuse and neglect but also their families and i think that's the other part of the system that traditionally isn't wasn't as well executed because the the systems that did exist are about the child that's had this impact Um, but it's and i'm sure you know scott and i could probably talk about this for hours but you can't um, try to put a child back together and then put them in a broken environment it's it's only part of the it's only part of fixing something that's broken so that's really part of what CACs are intended to do is really expand that model of care and you know we in, we in, we certainly investigate child abuse but the purpose is to go well beyond that investigation and create resilience and um, build supports and I think why that's important and where it intersects to the work of Journey Home and when we have the conversation about homelessness is you know it's it's pretty well uh, documented fact that yeah. um, there is a direct link between childhood trauma 
and so many of the social issues, not just homelessness, but addictions and mental health issues and physiological health issues, there's, there's a really common denominator in that, which is trauma. And the better we can get as a community at creating upstream support that is really meaningful, um, the better. And I think that's where, you know, this work, absolutely with the homelessness issue, we need to figure out the immediate mm -hmm. solution, but um, it's, only, it's only part of the solution. Again, we also need to go upstream and figure out how we do a better job of um, supporting people so they don't end up in that situation in the first place. There's a lot of parallels, I think, between somebody who's experiencing homelessness and uh, childhood uh, uh, trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, that is, uh, I think, displayed in something I know you mentioned as part of the 100 uh, uh, Heroes uh, discussion, as well as uh, you and I have chatted. Like, it, without a CAC, uh, a, a child finds the courage somehow to step forward. Mm -hmm. But without it, they were having to share that story and like how, how many places was... Yeah, and it really depends on the case. But, you know, the idea is you have all these agencies that are part of the solution. And so children will need to be sort of... Uh, and it's not just that they're bounced around sort of between the agencies, but they're also left to really self-navigate that mm -hmm. as families and figure out what supports come next. So it's a really fractured system of care, you know, police are investigating, ministry is protecting, victim services supports through, you know, and provides those court supports. But the the more seamless we can make that, the more effective it all becomes. And that's really where the center comes in is, you know, we've built this extraordinary child-friendly facility. And I could tell you dozens of stories of just the impact of the space on families. But then within that exist all of these frontline superheroes that are now working together collaboratively to do better. Um, so the advocacy center is is aptly named. So you're an advocate for that for that child that experienced that trauma. Yeah, and actually it's a great question, Rick, because the word advocacy is also complicated sometimes and it does get misunderstood. And one of the things that we're really actively working on is helping the community understand what does that word mean in our context because it's really important to understand that so within our model there's a role the child and family advocate is actually a role and it really is a net new role in, in the care of children and the child protection sort of sphere of of support and that role is essentially her, that person's job in this case it's a she so i'll just say she for simplicity um, her job is to be the bird's eye view of that child and family's experience through this system response and it's really about reducing the trauma that is imparted by a complicated system. Um, when kids have to retell these really dark, mm. complicated stories, it, it's really traumatizing to them and to their caregivers. So the idea now is when these kids can come in, um, the team is prepared and ready and we know what needs to happen. And these children can tell that truth in a room where it is recorded and everybody's there that needs to be there. and and they no longer need to be repeating this story over and over again. They can tell the story once to a professional forensic interviewer that knows all the right steps and how to get that information, and then they can start healing. We're not continuing to ask them to come back to the story and repeat it over and over again. And it's a huge part of, you know, it's the trauma that comes through the system that we can really change um, and do better by. And I think that's a, a, a beautiful picture for 
you know, us as we explore homelessness, explore kind of the, the, the different streams that can potentially lead to it in, in Child Advocacy Center, as you mentioned, is, is primary to that. But it, the, the things that we don't know that actually have contributing factors to homeless, like homelessness, like I know in my touring of CAC, one of the things that captured my um, mind was the fact that there is this cupboard full of backpacks for different, you know, uh, it had ages on them. And I, I'm like, oh, I don't understand that. And it was just shared with me that, you know, often uh, clothing that the child comes with or something they have actually is evidence. And so they have to take that. And so, you know, you think of how traumatic that is. Just, again, I have to give up. It could have been a favorite pair of pants or it could have been my favorite, you know, teddy bear. And now they have to pass that up and they have to turn that in because that actually is critical to their case going. And just all these factors in that type of experience, we don't understand. And that's why the professionals, the coordinated access is needed as that's one of the pillars of uh, Journey Home is a coordinated access because we don't understand all the pieces that go into a situation like that mm. for somebody who's homeless or a child. And I just think that, you know, unpacking that, Ginny, is such a, a, a great reminder that there's a lot we don't know. You know, and I'll give you a great example because the backpack program started initially because other centers did it. Other CACs taught us to say, you know, there will be kids that come and their their clothing is removed as part of the um, investigation or what have you. Or sometimes it's just because they're coming in from school and going into care. They're not mm. going to go home. And giving them the dignity of going into um, a strange environment with a, you know, a clean pair of pajamas and, you know, a hairbrush and a toothbrush that's their own is extraordinarily um, important to their self-worth and their dignity. And since then, and again, because we're learning as we go too, this is a, you know, while there are other centers we learn from, the reality is every child advocacy center is a response to its own community and what our community needs it to be. And one of the things that we've learned is how much further that extension of uh, care can go. And it's extended into um, sometimes their bedding is removed and mm. the bed itself. And, you know, so we've, We've had to work with uh, donors and we're so grateful to have them to help us create a funding model for when there is a barrier to healing, can we resolve the barrier to healing? Whether that is because they cannot heal in a bed in which they were offended against mm. in or um, because they're on a wait list for counseling, can we provide a bridge to that? So, you know, we've really had to be very responsive to if our goal is to help on the journey of healing, how do we do that? And and it's different for every single family that comes through and we're learning that as we go um, and trying to become and maintain a really sort of agile opportunity to respond to the individual needs of families. And quite recently we had an example of this where one of the police that are on site had said to us, you know, in the past when we have that moment where we need to take things, that that's our job, we need to retain those things and families will likely never get them back, you know, or, um, but now they get to walk down the hall and say, hey, this has happened. Can we support this family in some way? And it's also, you know, there's, it's, it's better for everyone, you know, for the front line that gets to understand there's an, another layer of support there now and they're connected to the next layer of that healing for families is really important. Um, but yeah, I think agencies working together is the only way, the only way we improve because I think all the agencies that are out there that serve in these complicated social issues are doing the best that they can. The reality is we can do better together. It it sounds complicated. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, you've got a you, you've really got to deal with a myriad of of agencies and, and caregivers and, and a whole bunch of other things, and really make sure that that pathway for that particular child in that situation is the right one. My question to you is, um, that's emotionally draining. 
Like the job you do is emotionally draining. Like I'm, I can't imagine, you know, a week goes by where there's not a few tears shed. No, there's not, especially because I'm a big crybaby. But what I, what I would say is, um, and it's interesting, my daughter asked me this the other day. She says, Mommy, your job's really hard. How do, you, how do you do that? And I think that's because even our youth right now are starting to, re they're living in a complicated world right now with everything that's going on. So the weight of tough things is starting to become clearer. You know, my daughter's 14, and so she's yeah. starting to process all of that. And I said, you know, I, I think the way we're, I'm able to get through that is knowing that every day we are critically making a difference. We can't change that it happened in that moment, but, you know, out of, I've, again, quoting another police officer, just talking the other day, you know, we interviewed 101 children um, over the last year, and the, the re response from the team is, we still have a mountain to climb, but every single one of those 101 children were served better today than they would have been in the absence of this space, this team, this dedication to doing a better job. I would also say, though, that I, I have the easy job in the center. I'm not frontline. Um, you know, my job is to support the frontline that supports the children that come through our center. And they have, I think, the hardest job in the world, um, listening to kids tell stories that no one should ever have to hear. Um, but they do it in a way that helps these children um, recover their dignity and their sense of self-worth. And it really makes a huge impact on kids to be heard, believed, supported. Uh, so, you know, I think that's, that's the piece that when you work on the front line of complicated work, it's about knowing that you're part of something. And that's what this, you know, the CEC really is a system change. We're not just doing what we've always done. Every single person that has come in that building has had to come in knowing what was done before is no longer the benchmark. We're here to do it differently and do it better. And, and I think that's really frustrating sometimes, but also really rewarding. And that's what probably takes the team through. But also I think the environment of the CAC is also better for the people that work there um, because it, you know, actually one of my own team members had said, you know, in, in the role that um, they had lived in previously was you know, you, you take the weight of that family's trauma sure. and you you own it. But now there's a, a really tangible feeling of the shared responsibility of that trauma, that everyone's got their role to play, but everyone's in it together. And, and I think that's really um, impactful for the team too. So it is a, a good environment for that. Um, I, I don't want to go down too much of a different rabbit hole with this discussion thread, but I, I wanted to mention covid pandemic uh there's a lot of things that you know ultimately the collateral damage is is children at times because there's uh isolation um you know we had a, a few months where the schools were shut down and you know these things i've heard and i don't know this and i'm not asking you to share any stats but you know is the impact of the restrictions and, and that kind of thing is that impacting children in a way with mask wearing and all this other kind of thing um, for us, and I think this is a really interesting lens because, you know, we, again, we started January 1st, 2020, January 29th was our first child interview and six weeks later, COVID. global pandemic. Uh, so we were literally a startup, brand new, not for profit, just sort of figuring out the lay of the land of our work and how our impact would look. And then we were in transitional mode. Now we were always operational because we are a, a critical frontline, um, response, but what we found out very quickly is that COVID also created a perfect storm around child abuse and child maltreatment. When you have children who live 
in uh, unsafe environments uh, where home is not a safe place, um, oftentimes school is their safe place. And they're, the people best trained to spot the signs for this are teachers and coaches and um, pastors, you know, the people that they see that are watching and the eyes weren't on these vulnerable kids. So there, you know, there was in the early phases of the pandemic, some stats that were, that were demonstrating that the, re the reporting of child abuse across the country had gone down about 40%, but the calls to the child helpline had gone up by 400% simultaneously. So it's a really um, telling thing. So I think for us, what, what we were able to take from that was this deep sense of validation of how critically important what our community had come together to build was really going to be. I mean, it was always important, but somehow those early months of COVID was just this really tangible reminder of this happens everywhere. This is not an issue that lives in one kind of neighborhood more than the other, or, you know, in one demographic of the population more than the other. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. And it was um, increasingly complicated by COVID. So, you know, I think in our work, that was our observation of how important this work would become. You know, I think there, we, there's all kinds of other, um, traumas and things sure. that are coming out of this with kids being raised in this kind of fear environment well, partner violence or all sorts yeah. of different things right? all yeah. these things right so i think yeah it's a it's a tough time to be a kid right now I think. Well, and it's like trevor from the food bank mentioned in a couple of podcasts ago he's the executive director there and he just said that you know like their their usage has gone up significantly mm -hmm. and more so even now than it had previously right when covid happened and i think there's all those direct correlations to uh you know environments that have uh, become very complicated or very detrimental to individuals for all sorts of reasons and especially for some of the most vulnerable which is which is mm -hmm. children which then as we've talked about the streamlines lead to those them becoming uh, students and then those students uh, you know couch surfing and trying to find because they don't have a residence and if they didn't get the help from a CAC when they're younger um, you know, now they're, they're on their own and they're just trying to survive. And then now all of a sudden they start getting perhaps an addiction or, or something or even mental health and, and they struggle to maintain and manage. And so that leads them to a pathway they wouldn't have chosen in the first place. And I wonder to your question, Rick, you know, are we going to see that in another five years? Are we actually going to see an uptick in, in, in homelessness or uh, traumas and, and issues because directly correlated to this season in the last 12, 16 months? Because you have a ripple effect. So say uh, a family has uh, the, the dad flies up to Fort Mac for two weeks on, one week out. And all of a sudden his, his uh, place is shut down due to COVID or what have you. So he, he is not used to being in that house for that long and, and for sustained. So then there's, there's more alcohol consumption. There's more perhaps opioid, a whole host of things. And that trickle-down effect always affects the most vulnerable, which is the child in this case, because the child's not used to the dad being around. You know, I'm just using a, an example, but I just think that there's a ripple effect that unfortunately, you know, we're going to see that years down the road when the studies are actually released. And, and 100%. Kind of I think the thing is, is that you're taking, you know, if you have a family that's already, you know, on this sort of edge of um, survival and stress and then you add economic mm. impacts of COVID and job loss and and then just the general stress of what the globe is going through right now like anxieties are high and we talked about that languishing art like it, you know everyone's operating at this sort of heightened sense of anxieties and stressors and unfortunately that that's that perfect storm we're talking about around um, this issue is it creates 
you know, a, a, an environment where those stressors kind of reach a tipping point. And, and unfortunately, that's where, you know, these incidences increase. And, you know, we one of our partner agencies um, is the Central Okanagan Elizabeth Fry Society. And, you know, that's another conversation to be had because, you know, what, the work that we do and the work that EFRI does is, is inextricably linked to domestic violence and violence against women and kids. You know, like, it, that's why we're partnering agencies when we work so closely together. But I think there's all kinds of evidence that we can already look to to know that five years from out, 100%, we're going to see um, outcomes from this, mental health outcomes, addictions outcomes. And I do think it's worthy of, of noting, you know, I think just to your point, it becomes coping mechanisms in this in this season, right? And everybody's not necessarily have positive ones, right? They can be negative. But I think, you know, and maybe it gets a little bit too close to our own backyards, but, uh, you know, there's little eyes always watching uh, how adults cope and how adults manage. And if we, if we aren't managing well, we're teaching them lessons about how not to manage well, which I think in turn can, can take them down some pathways they wouldn't choose either, which could lead to both mm-hmm. either finding themselves in a situation of violence or, or homelessness. And so, you know, I think, I think it's a really, um, you know, a moment to kind of take some stock of our own lives and going, what are we trying to do that, that maybe we need to get our own help with or we need to get some some guidance with so that we don't send the wrong message so that we don't put a child into a situation that's like that we don't start a pathway that's going to lead to somewhere i don't want to go homelessness etc addiction and i and and i think covid's providing this opportunity to to get real with ourselves a little bit and i know that's getting we're getting a little touchy-feely for that but but i think those are really important things to consider well and you also kind of touched on there something we were talking about just just before this um on the notion of generational trauma you know that this is also oftentimes doesn't live in a sort of isolated conversation that, you know, I think that's also where COVID, if COVID intersects with generational traumas and, um, and a cycle of abuse scenario, then, you know, again, that's, that's creating an environment where all kinds of things can go wrong there. So, yeah, I think as communities, we have to figure out how we, how we better support, um, people who are in that really vulnerable sector and, and trying to survive and then, finding these challenges and that's where some of these other uh, other issues start to play out um, if we can if they can't find those supports and can't lean on the community to support them so i've got one last question then we're going to talk about how people can donate because i think a lot of these words are going to help uh people better understand the the puzzle pieces of the child advocacy center and how it like i said how it helps the whole community um, was the question about the NHL standings or is the question still about CAC? I'm just asking for a friend. He tries to find a way to get the Oilers into every conversation. I didn't even say it. You said it, Rick. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> inside joke there. Uh, so what I would like to find out, there, there's this this moment, So, and, and I'm just trying to, I guess, figure it out. So this offending moment happens the child has this this episode before child advocacy center you know obviously they they went through the uh, the police department the detachment and there was all these you know these retelling the story and everything else now CAC is involved so are you the first call from so they're they're dealing with a, a pastor or a teacher and then you're the first call or the second call from the detachment? Do most of those calls come from the detachment? Yeah, so no, I'm really glad that you asked that question because it's part of the piece that we need to really help community and the and the sort of the population of people who are facing children and that sort of duty to report and how that works. 
So we are not the first call. Uh, when someone suspects child abuse, your job is still to call 911 or report to the Ministry of Children and Families. Um, they, we do not supersede their mandates. Right. So, you know, if it is an emergent situation, uh, you call the police. If you're reporting something that you think a child might be in danger, um, you can call the police or the ministry. Those agencies now triage those files to us. So the children won't go to the police station. They will, they will never end up there. They come to us. Gotcha. So it's a, it's a behind the scenes triage essentially where the children will come to us. Um, and you know, it's, it's an entirely different experience. When these kids come to us, they walk into a brightly lit, beautiful space. They're greeted by a child and family advocate who introduces them to a plainclothes police officer. Um, it's, in, it's such a critical difference. And one of the things that I really wanted to bring across in this particular podcast, because I think it intersects to Scott's work in the long run, when you can have the long-term lens, right? Like what happens in 20 years if we do a better job? One of the most beautiful outcomes that I'm seeing at the center is this really different, we have an opportunity to build a completely different relationship between children and law enforcement. Um, we've had many scenarios now where children have come in and they, they've they seen someone in their family arrested or taken away. And we've literally had children who will come and say, you know, we don't like the police, this is what we call them. Um, these are children being raised in homes by that example that Scott was just talking about. Um, and they come to us and now we, these same little ones, when they come back for a counseling session or something, or can I see my police? You know, they're, we're building a fundamentally different opportunity for children to see the police as their allies and their friends and somebody that's there to care. And I think that, you know, when we get 20 years down the road, if we can shift that, the mindset and, and, uh, and that's just one example, that's one of the agencies, but it's a really tangible one. You know, and the police have commented on it. They're like, that, you know, that that doesn't ha that doesn't happen. Like having these little ones come in mm -hmm. and say, you know, where's my friend? The, where's my friend? So and so, the police officer. It's mm -hmm. it's a really remarkable thing. Like it, it's how caring for kids in the way children need to be cared for has an impact. It's subtle. It's these little shifts of how they feel when they leave that change potentially the entire trajectory mm -hmm. of their future. I think when kids have had trauma, there's two paths they can go down. One is healing, and one is darker and leads to really tough things homelessness being you know i think there was an early stat that we had in some, a lot yeah. of our stuff that you know um children who have experienced trauma have a 26 percent greater likelihood to experience homelessness in their lifetime it is a huge and troubling statistic um, and i think that we by doing this work you know when you're doing the the work of today and the work of tomorrow then we're gonna we're gonna change that number and when you have those wraparound sports uh, from all different sectors and different organizations, I think it's it's also providing the the child tools to be able to to move forward in a way that's healthy and moving towards a pathway of health in a very traumatic, difficult, often hideous and you know situation. But and and I think helping kids at that age start a pathway that's a better pathway, rather than you know not knowing where they can go or not knowing they can do it. So that 26% just goes to, because they weren't given the opportunity. So we, we honestly have to be incredibly grateful that we have this in our, in our literal city. Like this is a beyond incredible that it, it, if you're looking for a direct impact on homelessness in our city, this, this is it. This is actually tangible data, real time that it, it, it works. And if you're looking for, oh, can coordinated access or collective effort work? Yep, this is tangible, real time in our own backyard that it can work and it does work and it does make a difference. And you know, I think you said there's 101 uh, children that you've already 
facilitated just this. in the first year and yeah and actually, go, like that's like one every three days like that's what like it's it, so last <laughs> year um on march 1st we had interviewed six children this year on march 1st we had interviewed 24. Wow. so also just the the escalation partly because we were new and we had to kind of you know we're getting our footing but um th this this will grow and i think that's important and this is people are talking about i heard a podcast out of ontario a couple weeks ago and the fellow was talking about you know the the idea of the police needing to work with other agencies and it doesn't exist in this country. And I literally called him. I was like, this is happening here. This is like, this is what child advocacy centers are. It is aligning our law enforcement with our social services and our victim services and working together. So, you know, this is happening and this is the perfect example of, of how we create better outcomes by these collaborative models that hold everybody accountable to doing their best job because we're all in it together. And I think that makes a big difference. So as Rick mentioned, if, if I'm, um, I know of a child or perhaps if a child is listening or somebody knows of a situation and the first step is to call 9-1 or go to the hospital, is that correct? Or, yeah. yeah. And you know, there's lots of resources on our website. If people are unsure about there, there's, you know, the duty to report is, is a really important duty. And it's one of the things we want the community to understand better of, you know, and it's one of those things that if your gut is off about something about a child you think is in a vulnerable situation, make the call. You know, don't take right. it. Don't take right. a chance. You might be wrong. Mm -hmm. Take a chance that you're right. And, you know, the the if it's an immediate access thing, it's you know, emergency room or police. Um, and then there's also the non-emergent number of the police. If you just need to have a conversation, with someone and determine if you think you need to make a report, have that conversation or call the ministry. Those numbers are all on our website. And what's your website address? CACcolona.com. CACcolona.com. And then, as Rick mentioned, is there also opportunities for people to donate? Yeah, and you know, this is a center that completely uh, exists because of our community and, and we exist entirely as a not-for-profit through fundraising initiatives in the community. And I would uh, be remiss not to mention how complicated fundraising has become over the last year and a half. You know, the golf tournaments and all that have gone away. So we are deeply grateful for the people that connect with us and want to figure out how to make an impact. Right now, there's a fun way to support us. The Boyd Auto Body um, car raffle for the CAC is on right now, so you can buy tickets to that on our website. Um, and there's also different ways to donate depending on what your impact wants to be. If it's the mental health program or the, you know, just where it's needed the most, it's all there and, you know, it, it's critical to us. So, so uh, my daughter has clothing and you just talked about the backpack program and everything else. Is that, can we drop off clothing? It's a great question and we've had that before and one of the things that principles that we have stood on is, you know, we don't go through a ton of them. It, it's specialized. And one of the things that we believe really strongly is when these kids come and their things have been taken, um, we ensure that what they take with them is new. It's never been worn before. It's a dignity thing right. for them. Yes. Um, there are tons of agencies that need those donations. So we always redirect them to mamas or, yeah. you know, some of the agencies that can make use of those. But, you know, we don't go through them every day, you know, and I think it's so important that these kids, and in fact, you know, we, ha we gave out a couple backpacks to some children not long ago and they came from school and wouldn't be going home. And they didn't know that when they came, which is, there's trauma in that. And they had backpacks because they were at school. And it was the first time, this is this particular police officer said, I never understood the value of the backpacks before today. She says, and they even had backpacks. But after this really tough interview, she pulled out the two backpacks. And again, their backpacks were full of school stuff. So the, the reason why she gave them out was because they weren't going home and they needed the pajamas. And every backpack has a comfort item, pajamas, you know, these types of things. And um, 
she said it you would have thought it was Christmas and not the day they were going to foster care. The little one took all the little fluffy things off her backpack and right away clipped them onto her new one. And she said, you know, there there was healing just in the mm. moment of that, which is one of the reasons why we've we've really maintained that, you know, we some of these kids have never had anything new and, and lots of them have. And I say there's no I'm not there's no demographic here, but it's important that the kids can leave there feeling important and something right. as small as a shiny new mm-hmm. frozen backpack. You know, makes a big difference. I'm running onto a website right away. This is crazy. I, uh, yeah. This Join is... our circle of friends, Rick. That's our monthly donor program. Well, and, and I think Rick just gave me a wink, which means I think he's buying me a raffle ticket for the car. I like it. I was so the 2010 Camaro. Like, sure, it's super Rick. cool. And lots of I'll the lo- lots of local companies have upgraded the car um, alongside Boyd. So it's a fun raffle. Well, I know uh, Mathal very well at uh, Boyd. Very generous sort. So I. Uh, Appreciate his his support too. So thank you so much, Ginny. This is in immensely valuable for listeners because obviously they may have heard about the CAC but never actually put the connected the dots, so to speak. So Scott, as always, uh, very nice having you here, and uh, thank you again for all your hard work, Ginny. It's amazing. Thanks, Ginny. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening in on the Homeless in Kelowna podcast. If you have feedback, reach out to us via email, rick at tempestmedia.net.